For the week of Thursday, May 16th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm Stephen Cox. I am back from vacation, you guys. Hello. So this week, democratic socialism, what it is, what it is not, what it stands for. There are so many questions that have arisen around the issue of socialism that we have invited on a member of Washington's chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America to help shed some light on the subject. We also have our weekly calls to action, all of which are dedicated to the situation at our southern border, and that is with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. That is all ahead, so stay with us. So for most of the 20th century, socialism has gotten a pretty bad rap in the United States. In the past few years, though, that has been changing, first with the campaign of self-identified Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders in 2016, and then in 2018 with the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others. But despite socialism's rising star, there's still a lot that is misunderstood about it. And so this Sunday, May 18th, Indivisible members are putting on an explainer featuring a member of the Democratic Socialists of America here in Washington, Spencer Cox, who I should mention is no relation, and he joins us now to give us a preview. Spencer, welcome. Hey, Stefan. How are you doing? I'm good, man. So, you know, we've talked a lot on this show. Listeners will know that we've talked a lot on this show about misperceptions around socialism. So I would love to just start by asking you to give us a working definition of democratic socialism. Yeah, absolutely. So, when we talk about democratic socialism, we largely mean a society that integrates democratic decision-making into all aspects of life. We're talking about something as small as the household to as large as a corporation or our broader economy about where finance and investment moves. Um, right now, we think it's pretty commonplace to be able to vote on who our president is, but it's a lot less common for us to think that we should be able to vote about who our managers are and how we use the capital or the wealth that society as a whole produces. So democratic socialism is interested in producing a society where there's more involved democratic decision-making over how our lives are run and how our broader society shapes our lives. So this is something that goes basically from the granular level, like you say, from the family level all the way to the top levels of government. It is a holistic system. Right, and when we usually talk about socialism, uh, we think about it largely in terms of the economic system, but socialism in general and socialists are against oppression in all forms. Well, that kind of gets into my next question, which is how democratic socialism differs from other forms of socialism that uh, people who grew up under the Cold War are familiar with, like authoritarian socialism. Absolutely. So socialism, like capitalism, has looked really different depending on where you are and when you are. So when we think about democratic socialism, we also think about like the Scandinavian countries. Right. In the 1970s, the Scandinavian countries have made this large push through very strong trade unions to have democratic processes in their workplace, but also to use their, their power that they had built on the left to start to take major things outside of the commodity market, where under capitalism, it's largely the dictative profit that determines where investment goes and how it goes into larger social decisions. So you saw housing being built on a large-scale basis where housing became a human right, investment into healthcare, investment into education, into these things. And now when we look at places like Scandinavia, we point to them as being kind of uh, the furthest along towards the democratic socialist model because largely they had, had taken those major aspects of basic human dignities out of the marketplace, out of the the dictates of profit and into the dictates of 
collective decision making. Okay, but just to kind of draw a bright line here, democratic socialists do not believe in government taking over large sectors of the economy or ending private ownership, correct? So socialists, depending on different definitions, aren't about taking every sector out of the economy. Um, So socialists in general are very interested in taking some basic things out of the market. So in particular, housing, transportation, education, and healthcare, um, and some of the broader things around energy and infrastructure. And I want to drill down on those in detail in just a second. Um, But as the term democratic socialism would suggest, the the DSA believes that democracy and socialism aren't oppositional. And in fact, uh, the DSA website says that they go hand in hand. Can you talk about that a little bit? So what we're talking about in terms of that democracy and socialism going hand in hand is that right now we actually live in a system that is almost inherently undemocratic. Like in our workplaces, we have no power over how we work and what we do with the work, the wealth that we produce. And so in our society, we have some element of democracy in terms of our political choices, but we have no element of democracy in terms of our economic investment, in terms of the direction we want the economy to go. Right now, a very small percentage of people that own the vast majority of the wealth have that power and that leverage, which is inherently undemocratic because they're able to leverage that that power in an undemocratic way politically. And so when we talk about when we're taking away the power of a small sector of people to be able to control a huge element of our lives, we're actually expanding democracy into different elements and facets of our life that it doesn't exist in right now. I would like to focus a little bit on the political aspect because I think that's what gets most of the juice when people talk about socialism. Uh, And in particular, I'd love to talk about some of the programs and services at the federal level that the DSA would like to see the government take on and what that would look like in a practical sense. So let's let's start with health care. Would democratic socialists like to see private insurance eliminated in favor of a complete public subsidy as is being proposed with, say, Medicare for all? Yes. So socialists in general are very much away in favor of moving away from a commodity market for insurance that serves largely the, largely the interest of insurers to a broad public option. So Medicare for all is the, the main demand, and that is a, an effort to move towards a single-payer system that is no longer involved in the market as the determination of who does and who does not get health care, and rather sees that as a fundamental right that when you are born, you have the right to receive health care, whether you are poor, whether you are rich, whether you're white, or whether you're black. You talked about uh, earlier uh, about other areas that democratic socialists are, are concerned with. You mentioned housing, education. Um, talk about government subsidization of, uh, say, secondary education, college, things like that. Right. So right now you have even people like Elizabeth Warren, who doesn't necessarily identify as a democratic socialist, making some policy proposals around eradicating student debt. And there's been some larger demands around reducing the financial burden of going to college. And right now, for most of us, in particular, those that have graduated recently, we know that school and going to college becomes a huge financial burden. If you're even willing to put forward the the money to do so, it puts you in a particular bind moving forward in your life. You're forced to work for a large corporation or forced to work in an environment where you can make, make enough money to pay off your loans. If not, you're constantly haunted by these payments. And so by making higher education and secondary edu- education into a, a commodity market, we've essentially made it available for a small amount of people to be able to go to school and be able to make free choices, essentially, once they leave college. 
And so in our society, if we really want to open up education and allow the vast amount of talent that we have in our collective culture to thrive, it's opening up education to everyone and making sure that it's affordable and making sure that people aren't burdened by debt moving forward after they receive their degree. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about um, making it a more level playing field, uh, equality of opportunity, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So it's really about making sure that all of our talents are actually realizing their their full potential. And it's not just about a larger collective potential, but it's our ourselves. It's a, the full self-actualization of people, which under capitalism, very few people actually have the ability to fully enjoy their range of talents and fully explore what those are and to contribute to society in that way. And so it really is an expansion of making sure that people are safe, making people that are mentally healthy and secure to be able to actually have happy and fulfilling lives. And that's the, the basis under which socialism makes its argument is this deeply humanistic appeal to to human dignity, which gets crushed sometimes under our capitalist system. Well, and it's not just humans that are getting crushed under the capitalist system often. It's it's also the environment in which we live, and that uh, brings up the issue of the Green New Deal. And, you know, something that often gets lost here is that the Green New Deal is a proposal uh, and not a piece of legislation. So what would the democratic socialists like to see enacted in terms of climate legislation? So in terms of climate legislation, I think some of the visions that are most powerful are ones that are are recognizing that housing, transportation, our built environment, so the cities that we live in, are all fundamental to this climate crisis. So it's not just being able to say, hey, we should no longer invest into oil, we should no longer invest into coal, we should be investing into renewables, but it's also about investing into our built environment, our infrastructure that's crumbling in a way that makes them sustainable in the long run. What I think that's really interesting is because it gets to fundamental issues around our transportation system that is really carbon dependent to our housing system right now that's largely sprawl based and also really carbon dependent. And it combines some of these really fundamental issues around how we want to organize our our cities, how we want to organize our our lives. And so I think the proposals that are the most bold are the ones that are saying, hey, we need to be investing in this infrastructure because it is crumbling and we haven't seen this investment in infrastructure. And in doing so, we're providing good union jobs, we're providing housing for people that are in desperate need of housing, and providing the future of our transportation systems that aren't going to be car dependent. And so not only are we like addressing this, this fundamental crisis that's produced by capitalism that is climate change, but we're also making ourselves happier. Or, you know, well, that's that, that's a, quite a concept. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's some of the, the things that are at the heart of the Green New Deal. Well, so, yeah. So then again, it's a holistic system. And so you talk about investment in things like infrastructure and housing. And, of course, it's health care and the other things we've talked about. And, you know, the big question is always how to pay for them. And, you know, a lot of European countries have higher overall tax rates on citizens. And we know that raising taxes in this country is pretty much a political third rail. So how does the DSA advocate paying for government services? One of the main things for Medicare for All is a capital gains tax. So if we're looking at the 1% that's accumulated wealth, not from the work that they've done, but from the inheritance that they've received from invested money. So this is Piketty's argument, right, that the majority of wealth has been accumulated now by the 1%, not from the investment into production and productive use of money, but from the inheritance of money and rent. And also by the money compounding and, and making more money on itself. Exactly. Right? And so money on money rather than money from productive investment. And so a capital gains tax is one way of producing and using that wealth rather than, for, rather than increasing 
the the pockets of the already rich of using that wealth then to invest into our economy. But also we've seen huge tax cuts by Trump, but since the last 60 years, um, the tax rates back when Eisenhower was president were substantially higher and almost on par with the European Scandinavian countries. And that was considered normal at this period of economic growth. We've just had sustained tax cuts for so long that on both capital gains, income, and on profit that we're, you know, have a huge opportunity to be able to do so. And I think that's really clear. So I worked in a warehouse at Amazon and in my time working at Amazon and and as a warehouse worker, I paid more money in federal taxes than the entire corporation has. Right, because corporations often don't pay any taxes. And, you know, that gets into the other argument about uh, how to fund government programs, say, through taxing corporations, and that's that there's the risk that those corporations may take their business out of the country, uh, depriving the country of jobs and ultimately tax revenue needed to sustain socialist-type government programs. Um, how does the DSA respond to that? So this is a classic race to the bottom argument, right? We saw that come out in in real play when it came to Amazon searching for its HQ2. And I think we saw a lot of people actually start to become quite bothered and almost angry by Amazon's uh, pitting different cities against each other to, to hand out the largest tax grants. And so I think that there is this real issue, obviously, that the capitalist class can use Again, a capital strike of moving investment somewhere else is a political weapon. But what generally has stopped that from happening is, first off, that American workers are extremely talented, um, that we have huge amounts of investment already into the skilled labor that's in this country. We have a huge amount of labor that's already in place in terms of other sectors of the economy. So capital needs workers here in the United States just as much as we need them. Well, that gets into the issue of labor, and that is your specialty. You are on the Democratic Socialism Labor Commission. So labor unions have been systematically weakened by corporations and the government in this country for decades. So how do we go about restoring and strengthening labor and labor unions in this country? So you're right. There has been a systematic attack on unions, and as we've seen in our country, a strong decline in unions. But I think what's really exciting about our current moment is that we had more workers out on strike this past year since 1986. Well, we had the teachers' strikes. So we had the teachers' strikes, the rebellion that happened across the country in West Virginia, in Oklahoma, in these states that have really bad labor protections, really bad labor laws. We still had some of the best strikes seen in decades. Uh, which is a really exciting moment. I think not only have we seen teachers go out on strikes, but we've seen new sets of workers start to organize as well. We've seen tech workers at Google start to organize around issues around uh, gender-based discrimination and sexual harassment. So we had a global walkout of Google workers who, you know, we would never think of Google workers as forming a union. But at the same time, this set of really highly paid and highly skilled tech workers are leveraging their power as workers to get the company to move on something that people feel really deeply about. And so you're saying that the momentum that we're seeing here at the public sector is ultimately or potentially leading to a moment where collectivism may start to gain in strength at the corporate level? Yes. And I can point to another good example of tech workers in uh, the city of Seattle here. Um, So there's a handful of tech workers that have been organizing at Amazon around around climate-related issues. So instead of thinking that the Green New Deal will immediately solve these issues, they recognize that they're working at a large corporation that produces huge amounts of greenhouse gas 
emissions, and they're working on a project to get Amazon, which has yet to release any of its greenhouse gas figures, to release its greenhouse gas data and to take on an ambitious program towards decarbonization. And beforehand, Amazon refused to respond to any of these things. When it came to any political basis, they've been largely fighting any um, larger policy that directs them or impacts them immediately. But all of a sudden, when workers started organizing around this, Amazon all of a sudden has released its carbon data and started to set more aggressive plans around reducing its carbon dioxide emissions. And so unions have this power not just to win these smaller gains in the workplace, but to win these broader demands. So as I mentioned in the intro, attitudes have been shifting around the idea of socialism over the last couple of years. Uh, Pew Research Center poll found that 49% of voters 18 to 29 view socialism more favorably than capitalism. Um, I'm curious why you think that is. I mean, I, I imagine that coming of age in the Great Recession was probably a factor. Yeah, so I can tell from my personal experience. I graduated in 2008 during the Great Recession, um, came out of college with student loans and had a job, and immediately that job was cut because of the recession. Um, we saw the banks get bailed out. Um, well, you know, we're still paying back our loans. Um, we've seen not just kind of the economic depression that hit for the first decade of most of our lives, but we've also seen an increase in incarceration of black men and black people. We've seen um, increased police violence against black people, and we've seen con a continued increase despite this broad social recognition that sexual harassment is an issue. We've seen the Me Too movement come about and, and really start to change these things. So we've seen kind of capitalism and our particular political moment as one of immense crisis. And it's not really the best of times, despite the fact that we have these proclamations of low unemployment. And so growing up in that time period, we don't really see capitalism as a system that produces wealth or produces the kind of lives that we want. And so I think that it's the experience of this generation materially existing that has shown that capitalism is not producing the right solutions. And it seems fundamentally inept and incapable of producing the solutions that are necessary. I think that's the most deeply felt when we look at the climate issue. So we all grew up in a time when we talked about climate change and understood it as an issue, and it's become common sense for most of us. Yet we see the complete inaction despite seeing temperatures rise and fires getting worse and polar vortexes having a bigger impact, hurricanes hitting our coasts. We see that it's this global crisis, and we've been unable to actually do anything about it. And it's pretty clear to us that the issue isn't about like the politicians who are in place but largely these oil corporations that have immense amounts of power in this intense political crisis that capitalism actually can't solve climate. It doesn't have the ability within its profit-based system to address this major issue. Well, so given these shifting demographics, do you envision a socialist future for the United States? Well, I'm a socialist because I'm optimistic about seeing socialism emerge. And socialism in the United States alone is probably impossible. It would have to be a broader movement that connects people internationally because we do live in a global world. But I do think I see us moving forward towards really instituting these big reforms. Like I think Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, eradication of student debt are all on the potential horizon of real material changes and ones that are inspired by a future that wants to see human need prioritized over profit and sees that not just as necessary, but sees that it as common sense, that of course people's basic needs should be met in a system that produces so much wealth. 
And I think that's a really big change. And I really am optimistic that we're heading in a better direction than kind of the history that I've seen in my you know, 33 years. Well, so you talk about the Green New Deal, you talk about Medicare for All, uh, you talk about uh, student debt, and um, that brings up what we know is going to be Trump's tactic in the 2020 election, which is to demonize those programs and use socialism as a cudgel. Um, and it might work because uh, while the issue of socialism polls well, as I said, with younger voters, it does less well with older voters. Um, that same Pew poll had the majority of people ages 30 to 65 and older viewing it negatively. So how does the DSA advise on pushing back against what we know will be Trump's narrative on socialism? So I think the way that a lot of activists see this, and I think people I have knocked on doors would understand as well, is that you're not going to win an abstract argument about what socialism is or is not. But instead, if you're door knocking with someone, talking about the concrete changes that we want to see, talking about better workplaces where we're actually paid a fair wage, talking about these transformations where we have affordable housing that doesn't cost 50% of our paycheck where we can actually get the medical treatment we want. So focusing on these concrete things and conversations, one-to-one conversations with people is how we actually change hearts and minds. And it's not about sitting there and having a discussion on Twitter or Facebook or in some abstract way around what socialism is or is not. So I think when it comes to winning people over to our ideas or our policies that really want to see you know, human suffering alleviated and more fulfilling lives. It comes from speaking to a more concrete basis on a more day-to-day understanding of what these policies are. Because when we talk to people, what we see in the polls, obviously, is that a lot of these policies are immensely popular. It has been funny to see, too, that when Fox News talks about socialism, what they're talking about is like, how dare they want to make public education affordable for everyone? (laughs) So when they actually talk about the things that socialists believe in, it's quite funny how how much it supports already the the kinds of ideas that we're putting forward and the kind of ideas that, that we're organizing around and talking to people every day. Well, you talk about the broad popularity of some of these programs. I mean, there are social programs that we use today. Social Security and Medicare uh, are broadly popular. In fact, even Trump Republicans don't want to get rid of those services. Uh, makes you wonder if there's a way to, to use that fact to shed some light on socialism. Yeah, absolutely. I think, too, when you talk to most Trump voters, and I think that's something that we have to keep in mind, is that most Trump voters are not in favor of huge tax cuts for the rich and for the kind of economic policies that Trump's actually put forward, but are largely interested in transformations around Medicare, housing, their wages that have suffered, good jobs, you know, the heroin epidemic that faces a lot of these communities, basic public safety, things that we all care about. So again, I think it's having these conversations and you're not going to win, obviously, some Republican who's been sitting on those tax cuts and has largely benefited from Trump and neoliberal policies over to our side. But if you're out talking to working class people about these basic material needs, people resonate with these uh, with these demands. And there are more of them than there are of billionaires. So... Absolutely. (laughs) So people can learn about all of this and more on Sunday, May 19th at the King County Library System Service Center in Issaquah at 9.30 a.m. Spencer Cox, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And look forward to seeing people on Sunday. And let us end this week as we always do with our friend Stephen Wilhelm and our weekly calls to action. Hey, Stephen. 
Hey, Stefan, how's it going? It's good, man. It's good to be back. So um, let us start with the Trump administration's nominee for Secretary of Defense, Patrick Shanahan. So he's been acting Secretary of Defense since the resignation of James Mattis, and that's been a while now. So we have had some time to get to know Patrick Shanahan, uh, most notably his actions around what is happening at the southern border, and particularly his stance on spending defense budget money there. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Well, I would say it's a sad story if you ask me. Um, so, so James Mattis, I certainly didn't agree much with his politics, but but he was definitely a man a man of character and and a man of of some integrity. I yeah, think. he was one of the so called adults in the room. Truly, he was certainly willing to uh, you know as an ex military guy, I, I respected his um, willingness and ability to uh, stand up for the troops and and to protect them and to provide good leadership. And it's far too early in uh, Mr. Shanahan's um, acting tenure at this point to um, say much about it. But certainly we've not seen anything like the examples of of standing up, speaking truth to power like we saw from Mr. Mattis. In fact, the most recent example, I think, is um, Mr. Shanahan's uh, nomination was announced on the same day that he meekly announced that he was reprogramming all this money from... I would say, uh, you know, valuable projects to uh, be able to fund uh, Mr. Trump's uh, vanity project there on the southern border. So, um, you know, in terms of standing up for what we need for uh, the military, um, we've just not seen that from uh, Mr. Shanahan. Yeah, and it actually goes a long way to explaining why Trump is proceeding to make Shanahan the permanent Secretary of Defense as opposed to the acting Secretary of Defense because it seems like he is willing to bend to Trump's will. Um, I understand that Shanahan has also loosened the rules on troop contact with migrants. Exactly so. Um, There's um, sort of two things at work here. In fact, I wasn't really aware of it. So probably all your listeners are are pretty familiar by now with the Posse Comitatus which is a law from the 1880s that says the military cannot be used to enforce um, civilian laws. Um, But there's also a policy in the Defense Department that that specifically says that um, military cannot be used for uh, direct contact with with migrants in in furtherance of, uh, you know, enforcing immigration laws. There has been one waiver that's been granted to that and uh, Mr. Shanahan wants to expand that, um, ask for another waiver that's going to allow military lawyers and cooks and drivers to assist with handling the surge of migrants at the borders. The, the drivers supposedly are going to be in a separate compartment from the migrants, and so perhaps they're not really going to be interacting with them as much. But but the examples with the with the cooks and the lawyers to me are a little bit maddening. With the um, the, the cooks apparently will be used to. Um, provide uh, foodstuffs to um, people that are being held in, in detention, which will allow ICE and CBP to pe- get move people away from doing that and, you know, get them back out to the border. And their excuse for wanting to get some relief is, well, we're just doing babysitting duty here, so we don't want to mm. be doing babysitting duty. I'm thinking, okay, so let's use the world's most powerful military to do babysitting. That seems like an appropriate use. And, and the military lawyers are going to be used to... Um, provide more capacity in the immigration courts under the theory that, well, you need a lawyer and these guys are lawyers. And so the fact that they've never had to deal with immigration law in the past and immigration law is pretty complicated. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. They're just not trying to solve the problem. In fact, 
providing more capacity in these immigration courts is, is something that, that uh, President Obama did, and it is a way to deal with the humanitarian crisis at the border. But, but they're not really trying to solve that problem. They're just trying to look like they're being tough and solve problems at the border. So how do you do that? Well, let's use the military and let's um, use military lawyers to, to kind of go through this and look like we're being tough. Right. It, it's all show and no substance. Well, further to that, just directly on the ground, in when the troops are in contact with migrants, um, Trump made a statement about how our troops should be, quote, a little rough with migrants at the border, and Shanahan declined to comment about that. So there are myriad reasons to oppose his nomination. And we're expecting that our senators here in Washington will be feeling a little bit of pressure around this vote on Shanahan. Um, talk about why. Well, there will, there will definitely be pressure on the Washington senators to support Patrick Shanahan. He's got very strong ties to the University of Washington and, and to Boeing. And so he's very well known here. And as a, you know, as a UW regent and as a Boeing vice president, you could make an argument that he's done a pretty good job. But as a former Boeing guy myself, I, I know a little bit about Patrick Shanahan. And my assessment is that he's way over his head. Um, in his current position. And, and anyway, back to your question, though. Um, so because of his strong ties to to University of Washington and Boeing, um, it's expected that uh, Senators Cantwell and Murray are going to come under a lot of pressure to um, support their uh, hometown boy. Yeah. Well, uh, so there are some very specific asks then for both of our senators around this nomination. Um, what are they? So what we want to do is we want to um, ask our senators to um, make sure that in, in the nomination hearings for uh, Patrick Shanahan, they, they are not on the Armed Forces Committee, but they can certainly talk to their colleagues and, and please urge them, their colleagues, to make sure that a couple of several questions are, are answered in these hearings and certainly to also speak out about these issues and, and certainly debate them when, when this comes up for uh, a floor vote. But so what we really need to hear in the uh, committee hearings for uh, this nomination is that um, will will all the senators insist that no vote occurs? Number one, no vote occurs until um, the Pentagon provides really detailed information on where the money is being reprogrammed from. It's kind of your first question at the beginning yeah. of this segment. Um, we've got a few ideas where the money's coming from. I think it was Dick Durbin who said that, there, that at this point the Pentagon is providing is proposing to spend or the administration proposing to spend 12 times more money on um, the border wall than they're spending to uh, repair Tyndall Air Force Base, which was de de destroyed or partially destroyed in a in a uh, in a hurricane last year. So you know, really misplaced spent priorities. So where is the money coming from, Patrick Shanahan? Um, and, and tell us what is not being done so that uh, Trump can have his vanity project on the southern border. So that's the first thing. The second thing, um, again, we kind of talked about it a little bit. Shanahan's already proposed to loosen up some of these rules on uh, troop contact with migrants. Um, will the senators insist that no votes occur until Patrick Shanahan clarifies where he draws the line? On drawing on using military in roles that that they've not been used in in the past. What what's his red line that he won't cross? Yeah. We knew Mattis's red line. What's your red line? Um, and the third thing that we want to uh, get Mr. Shanahan on the record about is um, exactly as you asked. You know that that the president has said troops should get a little rough with migrants. What does that mean? Um, Shanahan's press secretary declined to comment. So. 
um, will the senators insist that no votes be taken until Shanahan is forcefully on the record committing to uh, human rights for immigrants at the border? So those are three things we want uh, the senators make sure Shanahan gets asked and that they won't allow a vote until those uh, questions are answered. Okay. Well, continuing with issues at the southern border, uh, last month marked the one-year anniversary of the Trump administration's family separation policy. Um, And a few weeks ago, the administration filed in court saying that it now needs up to two years to reunite separated children with their families. And this is because the scale of the crisis that they created is turning out to be just massive. Um, The situation is just infuriating. Uh, It's heartbreaking. What more can you tell us about this? Boy, it's hard to come up with with better adjectives than the ones you just used, but this is just inhumane. It's a crime, I think perhaps quite literally a crime. Um, But but certainly, as you said, the original crime, as news reports are coming out apparently, is that, that the administration either almost intentionally or literally intentionally had no plans to ever reunite uh, parents and children. They didn't keep records. They didn't want to keep records. They wanted immigrants to know that, you know, if you take a chance, you may be separated from your child and it may literally be impossible to ever put you back together. And so, as you said, we've learned now, you know, I I can't remember the original report, but I think the original report was something on the order of several thousand, maybe 3,000 children. That's what I remember. That's about the number I remember, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, turns out the actual number is just a little bit higher, like 45,000 children Mm -hmm. more. It's, you know, roughly 47,000 children have been separated from their families over uh, over nearly a year between July of 17 and, and June of 18. Um, and, and they just, now that they inhumanely separated these thousands, tens of thousands of children from their family with no way to reunite them, they're treating it like it's no big deal. Well, we'll figure it out. Give, give me a couple of years, which, oh, right. by the way, hopefully you won't be president anymore. Right. But, but they're literally yeah. asking until the end of the Trump administration, first Trump administration, and hopefully last Trump administration, to even try and put these families together, back together again. So th- that's just wrong. Two years is absolutely unacceptable. That's an eternity in a, in a child's mind. Yeah. In, in fact, it may be the, the total ent- entirety of, of some children's lives that have been separated from their from their parents, so irreparable harm is being done, and they can't just treat this like some high school, um, you know, project that uh, well I'll get around to it at the last minute if I can be bothered to spend any time on it. They 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 have got to stop wasting resources on the border and start using those resources to put families back together. So we are asking our members of Congress and our senators to oppose any plan that gives the Trump administration two years to do this. And then finally, uh, related to all this, we are asking for reduced funding for CPB and ICE. Um, And you referred to this earlier. This is part of something called the Defund Hate Campaign. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting campaign and and a little inspiring, at least in my um, opinion. So the Defund Hate Campaign is a coalition of immigrant immigrant rights and progressive organizations that have been working for two years now um, to get Congress to reduce funding for immigration and customs enforcement and and, uh, customs and border patrol. Um, the, the two agencies that are most responsible, these are the two agencies that are most responsible for tearing immigrant families apart. So this, this um, uh, defund hate campaign is co-chaired by uh, t- two groups. One is the Detention Watch Network, 
And the other one's called uh, United We Dream. And maybe a lot of your listeners have heard of uh, United We Dream. Sure. Um, and the coalition is ask, is seeking to um, divest uh, from immigration and detention enforcement and invest in um, programs that we actually need, like health care and education. And Indivisible um, is a proud member and a partner of the Defund Hate campaign. So certainly something that I think a lot of your listeners will want to support. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, just overall, uh, Trump has uh, indicated that he wants more money in fiscal year 2020, not just for ICE and CPB agents, um, but he also wants more money for his border wall. But of course, Congress controls the purse strings. This is laid out in the Constitution. Um, and it's my understanding that Representative Jayapal is one of the authors of a letter requesting uh, funding cuts to ICE and CPB. Is that right? Exactly. So, so the the specific ask for for listeners is to ask their their, con- their member of Congress to um, support the defund hate campaign. What they're trying to do, rather than providing the administration with the uh, you know increased funds for fiscal year twenty that they've asked for, is to dial those two agencies, ICE and CBP, back to fiscal year sixteen, uh, twenty sixteen levels, and uh, three. Uh, members of Congress uh, and Pramila Jayapal is one. The other two are um, Torres and Chu are circulating a, a dear colleague letter. And, and I believe that the point of this letter is to, so, so who controls the money? Who's got first dibs, if you will, or who's got the first most leverage on how money gets allocated are people on the appropriations committee. So these uh, members of Congress, these three, Jayapal, Torres and Chu are circulating a letter that they're asking other members of Congress to sign on to, and it's a letter to the Appropriations Committee asking them to please not appropriate more than um, was appropriated in 2016 for for ICE and, and CBP. We've been hearing about this a lot more. You know, the, the, the administration is just refusing every effort by Congress to provide the checks and balances that I think the 2018 election um, demonstrated that that voters want, yeah. And, and so the one thing that that Congress has clearly got that no um, amount of emergency declarations are ever going to overcome is Congress has the power of the purse. Yep. And if the administration just wants to do stupid things, then the House just needs to not appropriate money for that, or to appropriate you know reduced money for the agencies that are not doing what we want them to do. And there's really uh, you know, they've kind of shot their, the administration has kind of shot their emergency declaration bullet, and they don't have that bullet to shoot anymore, really. So if Congress can't do anything else, they can withhold funds, and that's what they need to do. And this is a way to to reduce some of that funding is to ask your member of Congress to sign on to this Jayapal Torres Chu Dear Colleague letter to reduce funding for ICE and CBP. Yep. Asking our members of Congress to show some flex. All right. Well, that'll do yes. it for this week, Stephen. Uh, appreciate it as always. And we'll talk to you next week. My pleasure. Looking forward to talking to you next week, Stephen. All right, you guys, that'll do it for this week's show. Uh, I should mention that I just got back from a wonderful time in Europe, which, uh, as we all know, is a total hellscape because of socialism. It is completely terrible, and nobody is affordably educated, and nobody has world-class health care coverage, and it's, it's just awful. But, you know, I had to go over and take one for the team. Uh, anyway, it's great to be back. Uh, you can find everything that we talked about on the show this week at indivisiblepodcast.org. If you have not subscribed to the show, please do. 
and you can do so there. The email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Spencer Cox. Special thanks to Alex Johnson. Go Indivisibaby. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.